Hello again, welcome to Luxi, a podcast to reignite your wonder by exploring the science behind luxury items. Initially, it was going to be almost Christmas when we recorded this episode, but as often happens, life got in the way. Or the flu got in the way. Well, and family visit for the holidays, too, so it wasn't all sniffles and coughs and fevers over here. (laughs) That was good life. Yes. But we thought we would still record this episode because red and green pigments are still very interesting. Yes, they are very good colors for the holidays. They're also complementary colors. Now, I remember growing up and we'd visit my grandmother for Christmas in New Jersey. And, you know, everyone in New Jersey really goes over the top with their Christmas decorations. What was interesting to me is that when I was younger, you were more likely to see green and blue Christmas lights as opposed to red and green Christmas lights. I personally think the color combination is prettier than red and good. I like red Christmas lights. Yeah, I don't know. And then I always thought it was fascinating because in our small town in Connecticut that I grew up in, it was mostly white Christmas lights. Yeah, that's good too. That's a close second. Yeah, I, I like the colors. Um, I like red and white Christmas light combos. Oh, candy cane combo? Mm-hmm. I'm a big fan. But your family, I know Demos does does some big Christmas light setups for Christ- yeah, Christmas, Yeah, too. I, I did a lot of that. I, I did all white. We had a row of holly trees in our mm-hmm. front yard, and so I would put white Christmas lights along the entire row of holly trees, and then from far away, I would just tell people they were reindeer. <laughs> That's a good way to uh, avoid having to be too artistic with your Christmas lights. Yep. So do you know why red and green are Christmas colors? No, I don't. It's thought that the red and green association with Christmas comes from the Roman celebration of Saturnalia, which was an agricultural celebration that happened around the winter solstice. When the planting was done, the Romans would celebrate and decorate their houses with evergreens, which includes holly, which is green with red berries. Oh, there you go. Yeah. And since Christians did adopt a fair amount of pagan customs into Christianity, the use of evergreens continued in Christian celebrations of Christmas. However, red and green weren't the predominant colors, as you can see by Victorian Christmas cards, which have a large number of colors. But in the early 1930s, Coca-Cola hired an artist to draw Santa for their Christmas ads. And this is where the modern version of Santa Claus is thought to have come from because prior to that, to yeah, Claus. prior to that, Santa Claus had a number of different colors he would wear, clothing styles, appearances. You see, like the more Victorian, which has kind of the long coat, like it, a green, coat yeah, or a brown coat. But this version of Santa was a jolly, fat old man in red and white, which coincidentally are Coca-Cola's colors. Mm. So this association of Santa and red combined with the green of the Christmas trees had le- has led to red and green being the colors of Christmas. And this uh, came from Ariel Uckstadt, who co- co-authored The Secret Language of Color. I thought that was super interesting because I never really thought about why red and green are Christmas colors. I just remember that the whole Santa Claus thing in America, waiting for gifts at night and putting all the kids to bed early, mm. was to keep the carolers from going out at night and begging for money. Uh, Which is a time-honored tradition in many European countries, including Greece. Although more... Christmas Eve. And also New Year's Eve. That's right. Yeah. I think one of the really interesting parts of being here in Greece is seeing different holiday traditions. And, you know, just want to pause and acknowledge that we are 
doing red and green because it's part of our series of pigments, but also that there are many different holidays that are celebrated around this time. And the Christmas tree is not used in Greece for this period of time, but instead a boat. Mm -hmm. And uh, the boat is filled with candies and money over the course of the holiday period. That's not a bad boat. So, Demos, do you want to start us off with red? There's uh, Red is an extremely important color. Yes. <laughs> and, um, and it's also one of the oldest. If you hurt your finger or making a cave painting, you're going to get red as a, bag, as a byproduct. <laughs> uh, red ochre, earliest of pigments. History states that the first civilization of humans from Southern Africa and late Stone Age scraped and ground and created the ochre mm. as a classic iron rust composition. The main color, hematite. And then the term red ochre or red earth describes the various types of iron oxide, such as uh, Venetian red or Mars red or English red or Indian red. All of these iron oxides, fortunately for archaeologists, are quite <laughs> stable but acids can wash them away. However, that was not too much of an issue with cave paintings. Mm, so the pigments were extremely stable and created uh, very vibrant colors that exist even to thousands of years later. Mm. The matter plant is the first organic pigment known. Oh, that's and, very interesting. And as organic, we're talking about something that can be extracted from an extract from a root. Mm. The interesting thing is that we still see uses today for the, the organic material that comes from the matter plant root. Like fabric dyeing? Or? Yes, fabric dyeing, but even beyond that, the organics uh, behind the matter plant can be used today as a pigment for staining tissue samples and ah. even uh, uh, worms for pathology. Ah. But even more than that, there is another use that we'll talk about a little bit later mm. that has to do with electric vehicles. <laughs> Always bringing it back to those electric vehicles. I do love those cars. So the main coloring agents are alizarin, purpurin, and pseudopurpurin. All of these derivatives of anthroquinone. Matter root has been used for dyeing cloth since at least 1500 BCE. So purpurin and alizarin were isolated from the root in modern times by two French chemists and then defined right. um, as, as organic chemicals in mm. around 1826. Then I suppose you can make them synthetically too? Uh, there is, yes, you can make them synthetically so you don't need to farm the matter mm. plant. The matter yeah, plant it's a cute well. little plant. Yeah. There's even ex an example here of, of how to do it. You essentially just boil the plant and reduce the liquid and then um, you get this amazing tint from it the roots though right because i'm looking yeah. online and the roots are, are quite red yes they are so i have a feeling whoever pulled the plant out of the <laughs> ground said this could be useful for something yeah look at that color <laughs> vermeer used it in uh, some religious paintings christ in the house of martha and mary mm. as the uh, very um deep dark red that was used for the painting and Yes, matter has um, also been used as a, a, a way to, to also put clothing to, to, dye do, cloth. to do dye cloth. But yeah. we're going to talk about much more effective cloth dyes later. The use that I was talking about was that the purpurin 
could actually replace cobalt in lithium-ion batteries. Oh. And that's pretty important because cobalt is hazardous, mm -hmm. and there's a lot of CO2 that's generated in the mining of cobalt. So all of a sudden, the state, the issues of, of you know, well, why are EV batteries any better for the environment right, if they generate right. so much CO2? This is a quick and easy way to actually eliminate that. Now, the paper was from 2012, mm. and I need to dig deeper and find out what Perperin has been doing lately in terms of this area right. of, yeah. of research. The next big one, which is a fascinating and um, useful red that we use to this day. In mm -hmm. fact, uh, we have an interesting use for it that will probably make you gag if you're <laughs> drinking a Starbucks coffee. It, the name is Carmine and it's used and it's a car or Carmine Lake. It's a natural organic pigment from insects. Now there's two similar pigments that are derived from different insects. Well, there's cochineal, which is produced from the Dactylopius coccus, a parasite on cacti, mainly in South America and Ethiopia. The main colorant of the pigment is carminic acid. Second pigment comes from a, another, exit, another insect called a kermis, which lives as a parasite on the scarlet oak. Mm. The main coloring agent in that case is kermesic acid. My understanding is that the cochineal is the quote-unquote better red. Yes, yes. And it's interesting because if you look them up, they're little white insects, and then when you squeeze them, Red comes Reds, out. Yeah. yeah. The really vibrant red, too. It's yeah. and, quite and fascinating. And farming them is as simple as that, just collecting it. And it's the male one that you have to get. Yeah. There's... Which, and they're harder to find, actually. So dyeing textiles was done by the Aztec and Mayans since the 2nd century BCE. And the pigments have been used as ink on manuscripts by them as well. Spanish conquerors to the New World brought back these uh, pigments. They were lacking some color stability. Mm. and um, would change color even under diffuse sunlight. People in England who were using, who were painting with these, got this admonition from Arthur Herbert Church, mm -hmm. who was an, a chemist and an artist. Beautiful and rich as the colors are from cochineal, not one of them should ever find a place upon the palette of the artist. They all become brownish and ultimately disappear after short exposure to sunlight. But, however, they work very good for cloth dyeing. Yes, they are. And they are. there was uh, whole industries and monopolies and laws and European countries trying to figure out where the dye came from and sending people legally to South America to try to find the dye so they could oh, set wow. up a cochineal colony or they could produce the color. Um, you know, because most of South America was under Spanish control, they sort of had a monopoly on the dye. And um, it was a very interesting uh, economic and sociopolitical driver. At well, the time. that that could be a whole other podcast on its own. Yes, I just sounds like it. <laughs> Recent concerns over the safety of food additives have made colorants from these natural sources much more popular. There is no concern from the FDA even to this day about the of the safety of cochineal. Uh, it was, however, made controversial by a national public radio spot. Oh, the uh, Beatles the in your in yeah, your the, Starbucks, the, and and all of a sudden everyone was just like puking in their car, yeah, uh, with their winter spice I mean, lattes. I, I think if you are a vegan, that is definitely a concern. 
Yeah. But if you're a vegan, don't, you know, take a tour through a large grocery warehouse, even in the vegan section. No. I would no. recommend not doing no. that. One of the things that's interesting is people like the color red in, in candies, in their oh, yes. winter spice lattes. It's quite quite attractive color. And, and, and it's not cheap. It's five to ten times more expensive to use a coconut mm. than a synthetic food dye. And the synthetic food dye is may or may not be carcinogenic. The jury's still out on that one. So Peter Paul Rubens, if you want to see examples, uh, a lot of his work includes coconut. Simple lead oxide. Yeah, back to the lead. Yes. <laughs> you know what? As we get newer and newer into these dyes and colors, mm -hmm. we get more and more toxic. <laughs> yes. Here's a, what's interesting. A dense, fine-textured red pigment comes from that simple lead oxide. Uh, it's got great hiding power mm -hmm. and fair stability. Red lead is one of the earliest pigments artificially prepared and still in use today. It's a favorite of Byzantine and Persian illuminators and commonly used in European manuscripts as well as paintings. It's, uh, the mixed lead oxide containing the PV2 plus and 4 plus lead ions have um, been artificially prepared since antiquity, but can be found in nature as, three, as the mineral minium. Hmm. Now, minium comes from a river in Spanish Iberia. Oh. And... Um, it's hard to find. Apparently, um, if your lead mine catches fire, mm -hmm. the strong oxidation reactions in that high heat environment mm. will cause minium to form on the lead. Minium will blacken with prolonged exposure to air and um, is totally not compatible with orpiment, which we talked about in our episode on yellow. So being a, an artist is really an exercise in chemistry, surprisingly so. I did not appreciate how hard it was to create colors, uh, especially in the old days. From the sap of wounded trees, from the species of the tree called Draconea, we get vermilion. It's from the element mercuric sulfide, and the source is the mineral cinnabar. Hmm. An orange-red pigment with excellent hiding power and good permanence. It's used from antiquity to the present, but handling the dust is quite dangerous. Mercury usually is. Mercury inhalation. Some, it's funny, some people have have said, oh, well, if you stabilize mercury with sulfur, then the mercury isn't as dangerous because it's already reacted with something. So cadmium red was an answer to that. Um, there's a lot of cadmium pigments, the yellow, orange, red, all cad uh, basically cadmium yellow, cadmium mm -hmm. sulfide. And then you add selenium in place of sulfur. So you can mix in and create a lot of different cadmium colors. And the natural pigment produced uh, when heated becomes with selenium becomes red. Mm -hmm is a very high hiding power and excellent permanence. So cadmium red is available as a commercial product and it has been since 1919. The pigment, however, was used sparingly due to the scarcity of cadmium metal and the cost. Um, Matisse has done a lot of really heavy duty blue, uh, red colors. Yes, with he cadmium has. Red. I, I like that red, it's very bold. Yes. So chrome red, uh, beginning of the 19th century is another form of red. The mineral deep orange and the natural form of lead chromate, but if you form it with nitric acid, changes the size of the crystal and thusly the band gap of the crystal. So the crystal re-radiates color in the red. Chrome red and then chrome orange was actually quite popular with the Impressionists. And so we have an example of that in the, um, the Two Girls on the Blue Pond. We've used that painting for a number of different uh, pigments. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, one of Van Gogh's goals was to put colors next to each other to get them 
both to be more vibrant in the painting. Yeah. And we talked about this in the last episode, how blue and yellow are actually complementary colors, but in paintings, blue and orange are the two that you put next to each other to get them both to pop, essentially. So I'm almost done with my reds. And if you look for other reds, and, and you know, that's a whole other... There's many uh, reds out rabbit there. ...rabbit hole you can go down and, yeah. and just... Hundreds of reds to choose, naphthol being some, alazarin, crimson. Oh, that's the alazarin again. Yep, there it is. And so a lot of these reds do come back. (laughs) Some interesting things, red light is used to adapt for night vision. Yes. Lower light night. That's the rod cells in the human eye are not sensitive to red. Mm -hmm. So, and we did an episode on... We did, our first episode on how we see color. Yeah, so definitely go back to that's a great episode. (laughs) And bullfighters use the red cape, but bulls are color. Blind. Yes. So it's only the movement that agitates. Yes, it does not matter what color cape you wave at them. Yeah. I think um, there's also other things they do to the bulls to make them quite cranky by the time <laughs> they're out there. Indeed. Yes. So that's all I have for red. Green. green. Green was a fun one to do as well. So one of the earliest green pigments is malachite, and the uh, one of the groups to use it the most were the ancient Egyptians, and they used mineral malachite to produce a green pigment, and it's actually the copper carbonate hydroxide in the mineral. It's the copper that makes it green. So you can, you know, if you have a copper roof or copper sculpture, Mm. eventually it'll turn green with oxidation. That's, That's a pretty green in my opinion. It is a very pretty green. And Malachite is a monoclinic crystal system, which forms a parallelogram prism in its crystal structure, which okay. I thought that was kind of cool. It's a little bit different. And it's found in fractures in deep underground spaces where water and hydrothermic fluids create this chemical precipitation. And as you know, if you're not part of the solution, you're the precipitate. That's a joke. It was a joke. <laughs> <laughs> That's one of my favorites. <laughs> <laughs> so the name is Greek. It comes from Molochites, which is a mallow means mallow like because the the mineral looks like the leaves of the mallow plant. Okay. Yeah. It was uh used for many years to produce copper, so you can smelt copper out of the malachite. Mm-hmm. And it was used as a pigment till the 1800s and for other decorative uses. And apparently it's supposed to help you sleep. It's also a semiconductor. Well, there you go. So to make this pigment, you would grind, wash, and levigate. I learned a new term. The raw Mm -hmm. material. um, Or in the lab, you use copper sulfite and sodium carbonate. But levigating is to make a substance into a fine powder or paste. That's a great vocabulary word. For I love that vocabulary word. Yeah. So there's not many examples. It's in European paintings of use of malachite, but you can see it in Raphael's Sistine Madonna from 1512. So one of the most infamous green pigments is called Shields Green or Emerald Green. And it was invented in, 19, in 1775 by Carl Wilhelm Scheele, a Swedish chemist. And it's made by heating sodium carbonate and arsenious oxide. And Arsenic. Fi- and finishing with copper sulfite. It was oh, cheap. Boy. It was easy to make. It was. It's a beautiful green color. Mm-hmm. And it quickly took over as a dye for everything. We're talking toys, clothes, wallpaper, waxed fruit, paintings, mm. anything they could get it to dye with, they would. Uh, a good example of its use is in the Madame Roulon Rocking the Cradle by Vincent van Gogh. The one little teeny tiny fallback for this particular pigment is the arsenic. Oh, yeah. 
And arsenic is really poisonous. And we've alluded to poisonous pigments in the past couple of episodes, but I wanted to go a little bit into exactly how arsenic is poisonous. So symptoms include vomiting, abdominal pain, encephalopathy. Thank you. (laughs) I cannot say that word. Which is um, swelling and liquid in the brain, heart disease, numbness, and cancer. So the main mechanism of arsenic poisoning is the inhibition of pyruvate dehydrogenase. This enzyme is an uh, essential for reactions in cellular energy creation, so creating your cell's energy. Uh, with an, its energy system disrupted through arsenic's poisoning, cells go through apoptosis, which is programmed cell death. So you're literally okay. just killing cells in your body. It also prevents the use of thiamine, which is an essential amino acid, and thus clinical symptoms of arsenic poisoning can mimic thiamine deficiency. Oh, wow. Eventually, even though the 1800s were not known for their general safety regulations, (laughs) eventually enough people were killed or seriously ill because of the use of this color. It was no longer available. So people voluntarily stopped using arsenic. Well, and I think there were actually some regulations placed on it for mm. once. One of the books I was reading about color said that, you know, the use of arsenic at the time was pretty rampant. And so I don't think that people gave it too much concern. And then eventually mm. people are like, well, this seems like more people dying than usual. So there was another green, though a more bluish green at the time that was called Viridian that was invented in 1797 and put into use for painting around 1838. And this is a chromate oxide. And um, we mentioned chromium in our previous episodes on yellow and orange and in our episodes on emeralds and rubies as something that, that can lead to a nice pigment. And these pigments are chemically stable and can be mixed with other paints. And the painting you just referenced, Renoir's The Skiff, is also uses viridian. Oh wow! Yeah, so there's and, some and lovely the, because yeah. Because there's some lots of lovely green colors mm-hmm. in that painting. So um, a more modern green is cobalt titanate green, and it's a modern non-toxic green mm. pigment with a yellowish tinge, which apparently makes for nice landscape painting. You know, it has cobalt in it. Yeah, metal oxide of cobalt and titanium, and it was discovered in the 1930s and still used today. So I have a bit of interesting green trivia. Okay. So Imagineers at Disney invented a shade of green called Go Away Green. Mm-hmm. It's a mix of the color of the greenery in the area and this brown, gray, green hue that humans have a hard time registering. It's used to paint backdrops or construction or anything that Disney doesn't really want you to see when you're walking around. So apparently this color sort of blends into the background and so you just won't see like a huge building or a fence that's painted this color and we were recently at uh, the california disneyland and i don't remember seeing this exactly the whole point of it the whole point so nobody knows the actual formula for it but some guesses of shade are uh, agamthus green by benjamin moore spice garden by bear or relish by sherman williams if you want to go look up those colors oh that's so cool so you could make your own go away green well again it's an approximation because nobody knows exactly disney isn't going to release the exact formulation of the color sure But it takes advantage of what is called attentional bias, where we as humans ignore things that we're not focused on. Also, the cones where we see color are more focused in the area of the eye that we're seeing with, so in our direct vision. 
and rods for movement are in our more in our peripheral vision. So we are more likely to see the color of things we're focused on and ignore color of things we're not focused on. I love that where you mix science and vision along with color. Yeah, and sort of a bit of psychology, like yeah. this whole attentional bias thing. And you know, Disney clearly has it like really down um, to a science. To a science. For our glossary today, I have levigating. Do you remember what that was? Yes, that was to make a substance, a fine powder or a paste, sort of a not washing it, but to um, to grind it. Yeah, I think the visual I have in my head is if you have a mortar and pestle and you're grinding spices, you're yeah. levigating your spices. Okay, wow. <laughs> if you really want to sound super fancy the next time you make a spice rub. Yeah, okay. And then attentional bias. That would be where you don't, don't pay attention to things that you're not looking at. Yeah. And then for some cocktail party facts, I have two for green and then maybe if you want to add one for red, but who invented a very beautiful, but very toxic shade of green? I think uh, Schill or Schell or Scheel. Carl Scheel. And then how did red and green become associated with Christmas? Well, I guess uh, you'd mentioned some of the pagan traditions of of the holly holly tree. So do you have a, a red one? The use of of the matter plant yeah. uh, as a as an electric vehicle battery replacement for cobalt. <laughs> well, there you go. You could have a organic lithium ion battery. Uh, yes, you can. <laughs> so just about most, just about any new television is an OLED display. Ah, That's what oh, OLED stands for. That I did not know that. Organic LED. Cool. Mm-hmm. What makes it organic? Uh, That's oh. a good question. Okay, you got maybe me there. maybe for next episode. Next episode, figure out why it's <laughs> organic. So thank you for listening to this episode of Luxi. Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. This is the best way to help us get noticed and find new listeners. As always, a special thank you to our audio engineer, Demos. Our theme music is Harlequin Mood by Birdie. And we hope that you all had a restful and restorative holiday season, whichever holiday you happened to celebrate.